Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Alexander Henry. We'll be discussing his recently published book, War Through Italian Eyes, Fighting for Mussolini, 1940-1943, published in New York by Routledge, 2021. Alexander is a teaching associate in modern history in the Department of History at the University of Nottingham. Alex, it's an honor to be with you today. Ari, it's a pleasure to be invited to talk about uh, my book, so thank you so much. Thank you. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you'd become as an adult? See, this is, of course, my real area of expertise myself. So um, I grew up in um, the the southeast of the United Kingdom, just south of London in uh, the early the early 90s. And um, I think that when I have to reflect on what what got me into this mess in the first place, what drew me to history and took me down the the route towards studying history at an undergraduate level and getting an MA and PhD and now embarking in a career as a a lecturer. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to where I grew up and the people I grew up around. And I think I was very fortunate in that amongst my family, um, history and and arts education more generally was really, really valued. And I think really that was an influence from from my parents and my wider family that, that really stuck with me. So, you know, history has always been there so much that it's hard to think of a specific moment that really catalyzed things. But I, I can reflect on a few key thoughts and memories and experiences and I think first and foremost when I think about not just my relationship with history but my relationship with the second world war which really underpins so much of the work that went into my PhD and now as a as a scholar myself as a fully fledged scholar myself um, it's the part of the world that I grew up in and the southeast of the United Kingdom you know just south of London is still shaped by the events of the Second World War in a number of different ways. It is first and foremost um, the Battle of Britain country. So this is the part of the world where, you know, on the airfields and in the skies above it in the summer of 1940, the Royal Air Force and the Luftwaffe duped it out at a really crucial moment in the Second World War. So growing up, you know, my route, my road to school and where I sort of grew up around, there would be these now abandoned airfields, but they were there. And you would have to ask questions about, well, why are these old, you know, airfields here? Why are these old, um, you know, memorials and monuments here? And then, you know, the responsibility about the Battle of Britain. And then you asked it because I was a, a curious and, um, you know, awkward, uh, awkward in terms of the questions I asked anyway, uh, a young child, you know, I would sort of dig around and ask for more. And then it was just opened up this whole road of experience and, 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 and history, you know, really f- came from that. And, you know, also once you start asking those questions, things about your family's history came out. So elements of my my family, you know, my family's lives were changed by the Second World War in, in so many different ways. My family are from South and East London originally and were parts of my family were essentially bombed out of their houses, courtesy of Hermann Goering and uh, the Luftwaffe. And, you know, that really shaped, you know, where my where my 
you know, where the generation of my parents' generation, you know, ended up growing up in London, you know, it wasn't necessarily the place where their their parents had grown up, but it was because they had to move around. Yes, it's the same city, but move around to different regions because of an effect of the Second World War. And then that's how they met each other. And then that's where I'm from as well. So it's that interesting, you know, that deeply personal, I think, um, starting point. And then, of course, you know, once that got under my system, the slightly more um, traditional academic route, you know, history was a subject that I, I studied a lot at school and loved at school. It was my favourite subject from a young age. You know, I'm I, you know, ho- hopelessly drawn to this subject. So um, it was, of course, what I was going to study at university. And then coming up to, to Nottingham in, in the Midlands of, of England in 2010, um, to you know a part of the world I didn't know particularly well but this you know the university of which I am now a member of staff was the place that you know really molded that enthusiasm and trained me in the the, the ways um, the ways of what it means to do history and over yeah you know a very long time as a student um, going through all of my various different courses at the department of history at Nottingham in the department of history at Nottingham I should say um, you know really sort of honed that enthusiasm into a series of skills which led to in 2021 um the publication of this book war for italian eyes which uh yeah it seems like it was published a little while ago now but it's been really valuable and really enjoyable going through it in preparation for this interview because it's enabled me to reconnect with a part of my life and i guess in many respects as it is a product of my phd thesis in so many different ways you know sort of really that the reconnecting with a really formative and important part of my personal and, and academic life what did you study in school earlier on in your education study in school i mean all sorts of different things really so i guess the the when when once i was given the options um, you know, once we moved beyond a set curriculum and we were given choices at, you know, from about the age of sort of 15, 16, up to 18. Um, I think I, I had quite a wide ranging interest in things. It was always going to be history. History was always there. So that was top of the list. But then underneath that, I spent a bit of time dabbling with the sciences to uh, a, a variety of different um, levels of success it must be said but I enjoyed I, I enjoyed understanding you know not just how the world works in terms of its human components but also in terms of its biological or in terms of physics and and, and sort of the, the the forces of science in that respect um, it didn't I didn't take to it in quite the way that I took to history but I enjoyed it uh, I did find it challenging and geography as well, which I enjoyed for similar reasons. And I suspect also partially because certain aspects of human geography just enable um, someone with a sort of historical mindset to just, you know, basically turn it into another history lesson. Um, so, yeah, a, a few different, few different formative educational experiences there. But it was always going to be history, I'm afraid. Um, I think that the, the option for me going off into a life of science, that, that door closed a very long time ago can you summarize your book for us what story and stories does your book tell yeah thank you i mean what a what a great question and i mean that's the perennial challenge i think and but oh, the perennial challenge for all of us who embark in this kind of work which is how to boil everything down into a core message but it's really important that we do that so, I mean, I would say that, that the message and the story that I, I tried to tell in this book is that whilst the Second World War 
and the study of the Second World War is this immensely vast subject. And you know, the study of the Second World War, particularly in the United Kingdom, and I would also say places like the United States and Canada and the rest of the Anglophone world, you know, still has this immense cultural, social and political significance and influence. And yet, I think there are still some parts of really important parts of the Second World War that are underexplored and underacknowledged and under considered in the grand narratives of it. And I think first and foremost, or amongst the very top of those underexplored elements in the English speaking world in particular, is the Italian experience of the Second World War. And what I really wanted to do with this book was to really shine a light on the, the many reasons why anyone interested in the Second World War, you're interested in the story and the drama and the significance at a strategic, tactical, operational level and so on, you cannot ignore what is happening in Italy and by Italians during this conflict. They have you know, a very, very important role in shaping how the conflict develops and how it progresses. So I think it is, it is to address that point and to cut through from that some of the myths that have grown up in this, in the, I would say the relatively small spaces where Italy and the Italian experience of the war is discussed, I think it's often dictated by, you know, these sort of still quite influential myths and things um, about Ital Italy at war and Italians in, in the conflict. But I mean, first and foremost, it is just to keep drawing people's attention to that, to the fact that, you know, what is happening in Italy and what is happening to Italians and by Italians is hugely significant and deserves, you know, full, full-throated uh, discussion and attention um, from anyone who's interested in that period of, of, of the past. What inspired you to write this book? So there's that old saying, isn't there, that, you know, if we can look further, it is because we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I will be the first to acknowledge that the idea from this book came from reading the, the relatively small um, body of, of work, the, the small group of scholars who examined this specific topic um, beforehand. So in the summer of 2013, when I was working in a summer job between finishing my undergraduate studies and starting my MA, um, so I moved back home for the summer and was working in, I was temping in an office, you know, the sort of the glamorous, the glamorous part-time work of, of, a, of a recently graduated history student. And in one of my lunch times, I came across a book called Soldaten, uh, and Soldaten explored these amazing sources, which were the, the secretly recorded conversations of German prisoners of war who were interned in British prisoner of war camps in Britain during the Second World War. So these were the kind of conversations that prisoners of war um, had when they thought that, you know, they weren't under scrutiny. They, they were private conversations between comrades in their cells, in their camps. And what that book, uh, what that book <clears throat> does is shine this amazing light on the kind of richness of this as a source base and all of the, you know, a, a huge variety of different conversations they have about political leadership, their experiences of the war, what they thought about anti-Semitism and war crimes and, you know, the allies and food and sex and, you know, everything short of drugs and rock and roll, really. But they just talked 
about so many different things. I remember reading this book, you know, as, as a you know, young man in my then early 20s, thinking, wow, these are amazing sources. And then towards, I can't remember exactly when it is in the book, maybe about halfway through it, the, the historians who wrote Soldatum, they, they mentioned that there are these Italian sources, there are these sources as well for some Italian soldiers as well. And they give it, you know, it is not quite, you know, it's a bit more than a cursory mention. It's talked about, certainly, but it's not dealt with in any great detail. And I just thought, wow, you know, if these two, you know, amazing, amazing writers have gotten a whole book out of the German sources, there must be something to be said at great length for the Italian sources. And that's where the idea started from. And I sort of assumed that by the time that, you know, this was 2013, I didn't start my PhD, you know, for another couple of years. I'd sort of assumed that by that point, by the time that I had the opportunity to embark on a research project, um, someone would have beaten me to it, but they didn't really. Uh, these sources remained largely, uh, you know, they, they, they had been looked at, and, and one historian in particular, um, Amadeo Osti Gorazzi, uh, wrote a book about some of the sources that are included here in, in that tranche of documents, sorry, um, you know, did a really deep dive into some of the conversations between very senior Italian soldiers, um, sailors and airmen, uh, and, and, and wrote a book in Italian to that. So I was aware that that had been done, but I was also aware, even though my Italian wasn't very good then, arguably still isn't great now, that there was still a lot of these documents, a lot of these resources that had remained under scrutinized by historians. So when I started thinking about what I could build my PhD project around, it turned into an investigation of that. And the rationale was to basically continue the, the, the good work of, you know, the historians that came before me who really did a deep dive into the German sources and for whom I to whom I will always be grateful for inspiring this idea. But yes, just, you know, no one no, I, I was the first one to really sit down with the full scope of, of these documents, these Italian sources um, and just sit down and basically just, you know, I spent three years going through each and every one all you know, just just under 2000 documents, I believe, went for every single one and just basically reflected. The book is a reflection of all the things that are within that, really. You know, I let I let myself be led by the sources themselves. And, you know, yes, I it was my job to compile and curate and edit and put on layers of analysis and evaluation. But, you know, the the the, the, the richness and the quality of the book where where it is rich and has quality, of course, is primarily down to these incredible sources. And I really wanted to let those sources sing in, in the work itself. How did Italian soldiers view Jews? It's a great question. And I think that the first thing to say in that, in that all of the, the responses I give to these questions, which is that in terms of the, the, the research that I've done into these questions, it is primarily through, exclusive, almost exclusively through, in terms of the primary source analysis, it is primarily through the prism of those documents. So the particular intelligence program that the British set up that sat and, and, and listened to, recorded and transcribed these private conversations of Italian soldiers, sailors and airmen. And, you know, so it gives you insight into all sorts of different things, but it's not a, you know, perfect source base in any, by any stretch of the word. You know, it is limited by a number of different factors that I do go into in the book. I still think, you know, even taking those on board, they're still rich and valuable. 
Um, so anyway, that's my caveat. That's my get out of jail free card for anything that I say going down. You know, what I'm talking about here is like how the, 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 the soldiers, sailors and airmen in this body of sources talked about Jews and anti-Semitism, war crimes, occupation, so on and so forth. Um, I think they are representative and I do often they do speak to, you know, broader themes within the historiography, broader themes within the literature. But that's that's that that's the approach that I'm coming from. And I think one of the things that that jumps out when you look at how these individuals are talking about Jews is that what they're, you know, that whilst there is not necessarily the sort of sustained systematic genocidal hatred of the Nazi system, there are there is, you know, one or two individuals who I would say articulate a sort of really genocidal intent towards the the Italian Jewish community, the European Jewish community, or worldwide Jews more generally. That is not that that is not the level of anti-Semitism that we're looking at here. I don't think what the sources I've looked at suggest that, you know, we can classify and characterize the Italian armed forces as some sort of Einsatzgruppen, Einsatzgruppen in Italian uniform. That isn't what's happening here. But there is clearly a very entrenched culture of anti-Semitism in this cohort and i think from then also we can say a little bit more widely within italian society and the italian military and i think it's a it, it it's a it's a it's a it's a culture of anti-semitism that is rooted in um in sort of long-standing anti-semitic canards traditions in inverted commas um it's quite interesting how even though the Italian state turns towards a highly racialized, biological, biologically minded form of anti-Semitism in the late 1930s with the infamous 1938 racial laws, which many historians um, believe is a sort of, you know, almost a copy and paste job from the kind of anti-Semitic racist policies of the Nazis further north. Though there is that turn towards that form of anti-Semitism, it doesn't seem to filter through to the to the guys that are you know I'm reading the transcripts of in these sources. There's plenty of anti-Semitism. There's plenty of distrust for you know worldwide Jewish cabals in America, and this feeling that you know Jewish people are not to be trusted because even if they're Italian Jews and they've grown up in Italy, you know there's always this sense of allegiance to their Jewishness to their Jewish identity that will take precedence above their Italianness when it comes to it. So there is that sort of suspicion, but I would say, <laughs> I would say tradition is, is is not necessarily the right word, but I can't think of a better one. You know, that's a sort of longer standing European anti-Semitic tradition than the very sort of radical, brutal, biological um anti-Semitism and racism of the Nazis. And I think that reflects that broader position with how we understand Italian fascism as absolutely, Italian fascism as a system that absolutely, you know, engaged with anti-Semitism and was no friend to Europe and Italy's Jews, but is doing something distinct, I think, from the particular form of anti-Semitism that, that is being played out in Nazi Germany. It's not to downplay what is happening and to Jews in Italy and what is happening to Jews under Italy's watch in the occupied territories. That's not, not the argument I'm trying to, to push or, or promote here. 
far from it. You know, there, there are plenty of the, you know, the, the suffering of those communities at that time as a consequence of what Italy did is real and deserves its moment in its moment of consideration. Certainly, you know, the rights and, and the, the rights that were taken away, the opportunities that were taken away, the lives that were wrecked. You know, this is all very, very real. But I don't think to see the kind of anti-Semitism that you see in Germany just transplanted into Italy is a fair reflection of what was happening on the ground. Um, it's a nuanced position I, I do accept, and by no means all historians, not, not all historians would agree with me, um, but I, that, is what, that is the impression I got from the sources themselves. How did Italian troops perceive the Soviet Union? Well, this is another level of complexity and slightly surprising findings, really. So more broadly, I would say that, you know, one of the dominant topics of conversation in the sources that I looked at, you know, what are what are these these guys spending a lot of their time talking about? Or at least what are they talking about that was deemed important enough to record, which is an important distinction. One of, one of the dominant forms of conversation was just talking about the other powers, the other nations that Italy was either fighting against or alongside. Is repeated conversations. They spent a huge amount of time talking about the British and the French and their German allies and the Americans and, of course, the Soviet Union as one of the other great powers of the conflict. And I guess when I, when I sat down to do this project, I sort of assumed my understanding of fascism and, and Italian fascism in terms of, you know, how do we define and understand it as an ideology and as a political system was that it was, you know, very hostile to communism, very hostile to any expression of Marxism or socialism or, you know, the sort of ex the, to anything that could be, you know, the faintest whiff of Marx to it would be, you know, cl clamped down on and remorse remorselessly crushed. And I think we definitely see that in in the rise of, of of Italian fascism in Italy itself. You know, that that the really quite brutal crackdown and liquidation of, you know, of course, all rival political movements in Italy, but you know, the, the, the communists and socialists in Italy really targeted them in those early years and, and main you know that those those programs and policies maintained throughout the rest of the regime. So I sort of expected that when these soldiers would be talking about the Soviet Union, you know, the ultimate expression of Marxism um, on the world stage, there would be similar hostility. And Whilst there are some certainly in, in, in the cohort who are no fan of the Soviet Union and, and do have a certain level of that sort of have internalized that anti-communism. I was really struck by the, the quite widespread, almost affection for the Soviet Union and for, you know, particularly the, the figure of Joseph Stalin sort of singled out for praise as this effective, strong leader. And I was really surprised by that. I was really shocked by that. And I still am. Um, you know, rereading over that particular part of the book uh, this morning, I was I was still struck by that, and it still confounds me a little bit. And I guess the sort of the conclusion that I came to, or one of the ways that I came towards understanding why this dynamic happens, I think, is you know, understanding fascism and understanding Italian fascism not just as an anti-communist ideology, but also as a totalitarian ideology, as an ideology and a political system and a political culture that places you know those in control those in power have absolute power 
And when you see fascism through those terms, I think you can understand these this evidence, these evidence and these, these strands that exist that connect the, the affinities between fascist systems and authoritarian, totalitarian Marxist systems. So the kind of the system in the in the Soviet Union in the 1930s and 40s, you know, under Joseph Stalin, I think, you know, unquestionably totalitarian. So I think one of the things that I was struck by in, in unpicking what the Italians were saying about the Soviets and the Soviet Union was that, OK, this is a system that that does totalitarianism and is very effective. You know, they, these guys do not mess around. They get things done. Stalin is not to be, you know, quibbled with. You know, he doesn't take half measures. He absolutely, you know, sticks to his guns and gets things done. And, you know, there is, you know, it's not that these these conversations are in any way ignorant of the vast human cost um, in the Soviet Union. The fact that, you know, the success in inverted commas of Stalinism is built on, you know, oceans of blood, mountains of bones. It is not that they are unaware of that. In many respects, they they like Stalin, or, or if it is like, if it is affection, you know, they are drawn to Stalin precisely because he has, and this is almost quoting one of them here myself, if I, if, apologies if I get the quote wrong, but, you know, because he, you know, he has the guts to get the job done, basically, and, and to, you know, to kill the people that need to be killed. So this is, this is obviously, you know, th this is where we can bring together certain families of ideologies. And I think, you know, this is the, in this instance, this is where, to my mind anyway, we can understand you know, the Soviet Union in that period of time and, you know, Italian fascism in that, in that period of time as bonded by a commitment to totalitarianism. And, you know, if you are going to build a society on those terms, the, the, the you know, I think that the impression I get from the, these Italian uh, witnesses and commentators is that, you know, you might as well do it like the Soviets are doing because it seems to get effects and it seems to work. Who was Seaman Stefani? So, Seaman Stefani um, is one of those uh, individuals who was part of this, this program of monitoring and recording who just crops up in the sources multiple times. And one of the great frustrations as a historian is that I know what he thinks about all sorts of different topics because he is just one of the people that just comes up time and time and time again in the transcripts. He is clearly a, a real, you know, he loves to talk and he loves to talk about lots of different things. And from the perspective of the British intelligence officers listening to these conversations, he is the dream um, subject because you put this guy in with lots of different people, lots of different times, and he will just keep talking about these really important topics. So I guess, you know, Seaman Stefani sort of stands out, I think, in, in the book, not because I am you know, personally drawn to him and anything that he says, but just because he's very opinionated. And as a consequence of that, his perspective is privileged in, in these documents. So, you know, I think he's an interesting person to consider when not only in terms of what he's saying, but also how these sources work. And, you know, even if you say, right, you know, there are like something over, you know, close to or just over 500 
um, Italian servicemen that, that come through this program of in-depth monitoring and recording. But it's not as if all of those, you know, have exactly the same amount of time under scrutiny and under observation. There are clearly some people who, you know, never say anything of any value because the names, the list of names that I have in my notes is not, you know, all, I don't have five, you know, 500 names. You know, it's a smaller group than that. And there are some people who, you know, there are some names that you see once or twice and then they're gone. And, you know, who knows exactly why that is? You know, maybe it is just because the intelligence officers, the the, the, the structures around, you know, the people secretly listening to, to, to these conversations just think, right, you know, we've got everything we can out of this guy. Um, he's exhausted. So they're sent off to, to other camps. They're processed in other ways by, by this sort of vast network of prisoner of war camps and transportation, which the British and indeed the rest of the Western allies set up during the Second World War. Um, but yes, Stefani is, is just one of those characters who comes up time and time and time again and just talks on all sorts of different things about the war, about his experiences, um, about his family back home in Italy, about what he thinks about Mussolini. Uh, yeah, he, he's an interesting character. But, you know, I know I know what he says in these documents. But I, aside from that, very little about him directly. You know, he, these are, you know, I think one of the things that I find quite moving about these documents or, you know, quite it, it taps into that kind of the emotional level, I think, that historians sometimes operate on. Which is that, you know, whilst I have, you know, very little sympathy with these people as human beings, I don't think I would necessarily have got on with Stefani or or any of these characters as, as, as individuals, you know, given some of the terrible things they confess to have been done and do. But, you know, as a as a record, this may be, you know, the only official record that exists of what they actually thought about their experiences and what they got up to and you know, some of them, we, some of the very prominent figures in, in the documents, those of like field marshal status, those of the sort of leaders of the Italian military that, you know, go on to have, you know, post-war political careers and write their memoirs. You know, there's a body of literature there. We know what they go off to. But, you know, for someone like Stefani, you know, we see them in the documents and then they go off into the, the ether of the post-war world. So I think that's also something to think about. When we think about the value of these sources and these documents. You know, they give a voice to witnesses to the past that perhaps otherwise wouldn't we wouldn't have access to um you know and that's you know, that doesn't always mean that they're always sympathetic and nice people uh, far from it but 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 i think that that that, that, that does speak to i think as i say the, the value of, of these sources and these these documents how did italian troops perceive the american entry into world war ii so it's an interesting, an interesting one to sort of think about that question in alongside and in contrast, maybe a little bit towards their views of the Soviet Union. So what do they think about the Americans? Um, I think at their most charitable, the Italian soldiers in, in these sources, in these documents, really respect and, and are very aware of the immense economic might of the United States of America. You know, even before the United States formally enters the conflict, we have conversations in these documents in early 1941, say that the Pearl Harbor attacks and the intervention of, of America into the war formally takes place in, in December 1941, so much later on early 1941 where we have conversations that took place saying you know wow the 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 level of economic support that 
Britain and the British Empire is getting from the Americans is vast. And from, uh, uh, you know, an Italian military system that was always, you know, slightly under-resourced, to put it mildly, <laughs> um, you know, there is this clear sense of, you know, the, 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 a clear sense of the fact that this is not the case for the Americans. They have a huge amount of kit and a huge amount of economic support. And this is really feeding into the turning of the tide as we go through the course of the war. You know, okay, 1941, 1942, things are still looking pretty good from an Axis perspective, but the tide is turning. And you know, something that also they talk about at length as well, the course of the war. So there remains that, that, that sort of awe in many respects of, of the American economic contribution to the war. Now, unfortunately for, for anyone who sort of holds holds the, you know, the American contribution in you know, high esteem, the American contribution to success in the Second World War in high esteem, um, the, Italian, the Italian servicemen during this period do not have a huge amount of respect for the military prowess of the United States of America. Um, they do not hold them in, in, in anything like the, the respect that, you know, even amongst everything else that they say about the British and the Germans, um, you know, there is even when they don't really like either of them at various points, there is still a fundamental respect for, for the military prowess of the armed forces of Britain and Germany. This is not the case in these sources. They are largely very, they are scathing in, in many respects of the military prowess of the United States of America. Um, and it's interesting, you know, one of the points that I sort of make in, in, in the book itself and trying to understand why that is, is I think, you know, and, and, and for the record, I, I think that the American strategic tactical contribution to the Second World War and victory in the West and across the world was, was vast. But in the period of time that we're looking at these sources, 1940 to 1943, it, it, you know, America's initial, the United States of America, the armed forces of the United States of America's contributions on the battlefield are at best a little checkered. Um, you know, the, the the shock of Pearl Harbor is one thing in, in the Pacific, but also the, the you know, the, the back, you know, putting putting American armed forces in the Pacific on the back foot, the Japanese anyway, putting the American armed forces on the back foot. You know, through the Philippines and you know the 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 South Pacific, you know, pushing pushing further and further and further back, overwhelming Guam and Wake Island and all of those other places as well. So you know, being being sort of you know really pushed back in in the east, in the west as well. When we think about you know what, what are some of the first encounters that Italian servicemen would have with Americans in conflict? It's in North Africa, and. You know, something that's often, you know, overlooked, when we, you know, even through something like the, the Battle of the Kasserine Pass um, in, in, in North Africa towards the end of the North African campaign, which is this sort of much um, commented upon sort of, you know, embarrassing setback for the American, the, the United States Army in North Africa um, was led a lot. A lot of that strike back, a lot of that counterattack, though it was coordinated by 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 by. By sort of and, and included a lot of German um, forces, but also a huge number of Italians were part of that pushback. And so I think that what that breeds in is this sense of like, right, you know, in 41, 42, you know, from the from the slightly, you know, from by no means an objective perspective of Italian servicemen, the Italians here are maybe thinking, well, you know, what have the Americans done? What have we got to be scared of? You know, they got sort of they're getting pushed around in the Pacific by the Japanese, and they're not up to you know any great stretches in uh, North Africa. And 
you know, it, 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 it takes arguably until, you know, the, you know, I guess sort of the beginning of 1944, really, through, you know, the mobilization of the United States Army. You know, this is the period of time when, you know, the American contribution to the strategic bombing campaign in northern Europe really starts ramping up. You know, it's 1944 to 1945 where I think you can start seeing the sort of the American contribution to the Second World War directly, you know, in terms of boots on the ground, planes in the air, really being noticeable. Um, but for the purposes of this project, you know, that the sources dry up in, you know, late 1943. So we don't get that. So I guess, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, the Italian, the, the low opinion that these Italian servicemen have of the fighting capacity of the United States of America, it is a reflection of a particular moment of the American experience of the Second World War that, you know, does not remain the same. You know, it, 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 there's this sort of building momentum to the point that, you know, one could argue or, you know, one, well, one could argue that by the end of the Second World War, America is the world's leading military superpower, you know, the only nuclear power. And, you know, with a vast navy and an incredibly sophisticated armed force and an ability to, in conventional bombing terms, you know, rain down destruction on, on, on cities through things like, you know, the, the, the United States Air Force, you know, that, that is unparalleled. So... It, it, it's, it, it's an interesting moment, I think, to reflect on, not just in terms of what the Italians are saying and what does that say about perceptions of the United States of America, but I think they are pointing at something that does hold a bit of water. Um, with apologies to to any American listeners who feel like I'm I'm doing down the, the fine contributions of their countrymen in the past. That that's not the the, the point. I, but I think in 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 that mid stage of the Second World War, um, you know, the the, the 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 Italian servicemen in this book, I think, are pointing at something that is quite profound. I think you know the the great successes, the great contributions of American military might are maybe to come and maybe haven't been felt fully. Um, in 1940, 1941. Well, obviously not 1940, but 1941, 1942, 1943. What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of World War II? Well, I mean, I think it, it's it, what I was trying to do, what I was trying explicitly to do at the outset is to say that you know, we have to remember that the Italians are here. Um, I know it's not necessarily the most sophisticated point, but I do think, I do think that their, their, their contribution and their influence to the shape and the course of the Second World War is important. Not to say that this was a good thing, uh, far from it, but you know, when we think about understanding, you know, how and why the conflict in the Second World War, you know, spreads into Africa in the first place, or, you know, the particular emphasis that is put on the Mediterranean and southern, southern east, southeastern and southwestern Europe. That is in many respects led by, by the Italian intervention in the war and the particular, uh, particular way that that played out. And I think it's really important to, to, to remember that from a sort of strategic level, trying to insert, you know, remind everyone that Italy is something, it, the contribution of the Italians to the Second World War and the intervention of the Italians into the Second World War is something that is worthy of, of serious consideration and understanding. Um, so I think that underpins it all. I think, you know, within sort of smaller points, it's also to remind us all as well that like, you know, when we talk about the crimes of fascism, and crimes against humanity and genocide we rightly we rightly spend a lot of time talking about the holocaust and the nazis um 
but when we think about but but i don't think they are the only peoples the only forces of the axis during the second world war who are you know, committing things that could be termed crimes against humanity and i think the italians when we look at how they go about occupying and then controlling territories in the balkans greece southern france you know they are engaging in some seriously brutal and ruthless behaviors here that i think you know when we're talking about the crimes of fascism and why you know why we must say things like never again yes we have to talk about the genocidal policies and of the final solution and holocaust 100 percent. but i think we also have to make sure that there is consideration you know for what the italians are doing and you know the crimes and, and the brutality of that in or what italian fascism is doing in places like the balkans and i think you know if you're if you're taking a slightly more sort of moralizing tone to things you know when we think about you know the post-war history of parts of the world like the balkans you know and the way that you know that unraveled in absolutely spectacular fashion in you know the 1990 in you know the end at the end of, of of yugoslavia and the fall of yugoslavia and the kind of sectarian violence and tensions that spilled out there um you know italy does have the you know, kind of the historical experience of those parts of the world being occupied by yes the germans but also the italians is part of the reason why those things happened so i guess it is it is that you know it, it's reminding everyone i think that you know when we make these these judgments about the legacy and the significance of the second world war we have to remember that what is happening by Italians and to Italians is, is really important. And you know, that's a particular example of it. And hopefully, you know, if the people who have read the book or, or, or might go on to read the book as a consequence of listening to this podcast will realise that, you know, there's lots of other examples of that in, in the book as well to say that actually, yes, you know, by taking the perspective of what's happening to Italy and what Italians are doing, can add layers to our understanding of this global conflict that shaped the world that we live in in so many different ways. What new perspectives are presented in this book regarding Edda Mussolini? Um, so Edda Mussolini, um, uh, Benito Mussolini's uh, daughter, and um, who also marries Galizio Ciano, who is the uh well, at, at, at one point or another, Italy's uh, foreign minister and has left us with this incredible diary, Ciano's diary, which is an absolute staple of, of, of the literature, not just of Italy in the Second World War, but in the Second World War more, more generally. Edda Mussolini, I think how Edda Mussolini features in this book is in the ways that the, the soldiers, sailors and airmen that, that that, that form the, the basis of, of, of these transcripts, these conversations, how they talk about the leading lights of fascism, you know, the fascist first family. What are they talking about? How are they talking about them? What are they saying about them? And unfortunately for Edda, it is not a particularly positive image. She is slandered um, <laughs> quite viciously by the the, 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 the the subjects of these transcripts of these conversations that form the heart of the book. 
And I see that as, you know, yes, I think, you know, parts, you know, a lot of the criticism of, of Edda Mussolini is that she has this supposedly, you know, she's incredibly promiscuous and lavicious and libidinous and, you know, her sexual appetites are talked about at length. There is clearly something happening here, which is about targeting out, you know, singling her out for criticism because of her gender, because she's a woman. That is unquestionably a dynamic of what's happening here. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that, you know, when when these, you know, servicemen, service members are criticising Mussolini's daughter, they are also criticising the system of fascist leadership. And I think that's the kind of the bigger point I was trying to make when I talked about, you know, how Ciano, how Edda, how Benito Mussolini are talked about in these books. And it is this way that over the course of the war as 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 pessimism and defeatism filters in ever ever more strongly into the mindset of these soldiers they also turn against the leadership of of um of their nation in this really profound way and there is this immense cynicism and skepticism of of not fascism as a sort of ideology or as a belief system necessarily but as a political system as as a system that has, is being manifested and you know it's some you know it, it's this idea that the fascist system in italy is by this point you know corrupt and unfair and unjust and these guys who are the foot soldiers of italian fascism are thoroughly sick of it and they're and they are they are they are very very pessimistic about it now i don't think it's because they have turned suddenly from being diehard fascist supporters to then you know being anti-fascist straight away in terms of the ideas i think they are still i think they still appreciate the values of italian fascism this idea that they want to build a strong italian state and this cult of you know imperialism and conquest and war you know it's not a complete rejection of all aspects of fascist messaging and, and policy you know, the, the crossover between what they think about, you know, Britain and France and fascist messaging about who are the enemies of fascist Italy is, you know, very clear. You know, it's, it's the same. There's no there, there is just a perfect crossover there in so many different ways. So it's not that they're, you know, uninterested in, in fascism in terms of its belief system, but they just think that, OK, you know, the, the initial promise in inverted commas of fascism in the 1920s has been failed. And what they are left with now is this generation of leaders and prominent fascist figures who are offering them nothing and while you know these guys who are, are talking amongst themselves have been serving on the front lines and have now been captured by the british the fascists back home are living the good life um you know in, on the home front in comfort that is the perception there and obviously what is being said about edda Mussolini um and her uh, personal life is seen within that context of anti you know hostility to fascist leadership what new perspectives are presented in this study regarding the conduct of italian troops occupying southern france can you comment on bordeaux under italian occupation yes so bordeaux offers this really interesting case study um so and bordeaux also sits within this quite interesting place more broadly within the experience of, of france under occupation so when France is defeated in the summer of 1940, um, Italians occupy a number of um, departments in <clears throat> the southeast of France. Um, Bordeaux is not 
one of those. But there is a very large Italian presence in Bordeaux because it becomes the site of a really important Italian naval base <coughs> called uh, Betasom. Um, so the, the Italian Navy sends an entire submarine flotilla to Bordeaux to, you know, be part of the Battle of the Atlantic for, you know, for, so, so the Allied submarines can contribute to the efforts to, you know, cut off supplies to, you know, bet- between the Western allies through the Atlantic. So that's why there are these large numbers of Italians there. It's because there's a naval base. It's formerly part of the German zone of occupation. But there is this vast Italian presence there who also form these sort of, you know, you know, they are part of the occupation forces. They're maybe not the ones dictating policy in Bordeaux, but they're there and they're very influential. So that's what they're doing there. And I mean, I think, again, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but one of the things I wanted to get across to um, anyone reading this who's interested in the occupation of France is just to remind people again that, yes, the Italians are here, too. It's not just the Germans. And I think Bordeaux in particular, because of this intersection between, you know, the French civilian population who are there, the Germans who are who are there, you know, also with their own naval base, and they are just the, in the conventional forces of occupation, and the Italian naval base. It's this really interesting sort of cross section of relationships and dynamics. One of the things that comes across is that you know Bordeaux is this really you know there's a lot of tension there, in all those different directions. Um, it's tension between. Italian naval personnel and French male civilians who, you know, I guess in sort of a lot of like sexual jealousy and feelings of shame about France's sort of humiliation in 1940, the defeat, you know, the strategic earthquake earthquake of the the defeat of France in 1940 being played out here as long as, you know, tied into the sort of the, 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 I guess, the sort of the more daily tensions that would exist from you know when a load of foreigners come into you know a foreign occupying force comes into the town and is spending lots of money and is trying to sleep with all of you know the french women and you know wrecking the economy through things like the black market you know there's all that tension that envy and that jealousy wrapped up in that so that plays out a lot there i mean as a consequence of that as well you know what's happening in bordeaux is also huge numbers of well huge amount of of sexual encounters between french women and italian sailors and sub submariners and some of those are to to what is described in these sources at least some of these are you know entirely innocent bit of escapism you know from the the, the dreariness of occupied life or indeed you know the horrors and and the the stress and the trauma of fighting in the battle of the atlantic on italian submarines um but you know alongside that there's also huge amounts of sexual exploitation um, you know absolutely uh rife um, levels of, of prostitution and sex work with a variety of different levels of sort of consent it would seem from what is said in these sources and as a consequence of that as well absolutely you know rife you know bordeaux rife with venereal disease and sexual transmitted disease as well so it's (laughs) what bordeaux offers when we think about you know what the italian servicemen are talking about their experiences at the beta sun naval base or 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 at least you know stories they've heard is this real dark heart of um you know the occupation process and the sort of the grubbiness of it all as well and you know that's even before we get into the sort of you know the the 
the ways that you know various different reprisals were were meted out by any form of resistance or um dissent and you know the ways that also italian italian servicemen particularly the san marco marines who were there as the sort of you know security for the base were also very much complicit in that as well we see that in a number of different conversations there it's not just germans running around you know offering out reprisals for resistance activities it's the san marco marines there as well doing it so you know yes again you know the 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 first point to say there is yeah it's about reminding people that there were these huge numbers of italians in bordeaux as well something that is you know sometimes overlooked in well i mean yeah particularly the the anglophone historiography of this but i think even in some of the french writing on um on the occupation of bordeaux you know i will put my hands up to say that you know if my italian isn't brilliant neither is my french but you know the 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 forays i did into the french literature on this did sort of seem to sort of overlook what was happening with the italians there you know they might mention it in a vague sense or in a sort of you know little sort of you know introductory way but never really drew down into what was happening what were the kind of encounters that were happening between french men women you know and these italian people there and you know how did that how did that impact daily life in bordeaux and you know i think hopefully anyway my research is 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 putting in that perspective there of you know the sort of the daily encounters and in many respects that means the daily struggle and the daily tensions that stemmed from that who was field marshal messe Field Marshal Messe is um, one of those uh, one of those sort of high ranking um, Italian officers who was um, covertly monitored by the intelligence operation I've been talking about all along here. So he is one of the figures in the book who 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 comes up who who is talked about is talked about by others and talks about himself. And if we're thinking about you know the the perspective and the 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 insight that examining um, the high-ranking Italian officers uh, in in this book and in these primary sources, <clears throat> you know, Messe is a great place to start. You know, not only because he, you know, he's so high-ranking, he's so influential in, you know, strategic decision making during the war itself, but also he says a number of different interesting things at various points in in the book and in in the research in, in the uh, transcript. Sorry. So that that that's him there. So I guess you know when we're looking at you know who 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 is in this cohort of Italian servicemen. Um, yes, we have people from the very sort of bottom of the military hierarchy through someone like Simon Stefani, and sort of you know petty officers, junior officers in all the service branches, all the way up to the very top. You know, Field Marshal Messe is, is one of those, and. Um, you know, I will. I will also, you know, say, you know, I try and acknowledge, you know, who who's come before me in that respect, and you know, the particular perspectives of those senior senior Italian officers, you know, has been investigated and evaluated incredibly well and in incredibly detailed form by one of my pre precursors, one of the authors who got there before me, as I've mentioned their name before, Amadeo Osti Grazzi. Um, in in their book, which is you know it's got an Italian title, um, but it, it loosely translates to you know we do not know hate. Uh, and yeah, his perspective is interesting. And I think by looking at by looking at you know uh, Osti Grazzi's book and also the sources themselves that I've sort of fed into to my work, I think you can see through some of the things that Messe is saying. It's the start of this process by which you know the senior italian officers army officers start creating this narrative of distance between them and the italian fascists 
and the the, the fascist political system um, and trying to create this 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 culture and this narrative by which at the end of the conflict they can start rehabilitating their own reputations and carving out a position for themselves in post-war Italian society um, they're, they're, they're working on their arguments to say well you know I was an honourable officer of the Royal Italian Army. I, you know, I, I had to, you know, get my hands dirty from time to time, but, you know, it was only because I was told to by those dastardly fascists. Um, I'm, you know, paraphrasing and, 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 and sort of, you know, sweeping, you know, making slightly sweeping comments here, but that's where I think you can start to see that process happening through some of the things that Messe and indeed others others um, are, are talking about in these camps and in these transcripts and then that feeds into you know their post-war writings and their memoirs and so on and so forth so i think messe is an interesting example of you know of that process of this group of senior italian officers who are sort of looking looking to the past and talking about their own experiences and you know responding to changing events in the war you know messe does reflect at length on you know what does it mean for italy in the summer and autumn of 1943 when mussolini is initially overthrown and then there is the signing of the armistice the armistice of casabile in, in september 1943 he's responding to that as well but i think you know from the historical perspective or you know one of the things that i thought was really interesting about um, you know these sources and, um, uh, and and what they what these officers are saying and trying to sort of get straight. They're trying to get their line straight for their sort of justifications for why they did what they did, which I always think is interesting and curious um, when we talk about. Again, you know, it's not the first time we talked about you know how you know, how we think about the Second World War. Yes, it's about the events of the war itself, but it's also important and hugely influential and significant in thinking about post-war and the post-war era and, you know, shaping that. Can you tell us what the various campaigns and battles that Italian troops participated in? Of course. So it's an incredibly wide-ranging, you know, the Italian War, you know, 1940 to 1943, which is before before Mussolini is overthrown, before that armistice is signed, is incredibly wide-ranging. So there are campaigns on land in, and I'm going to forget some absolutely incredibly important ones here as I start my list. So apologies to any listeners who are sitting screaming at home thinking, how does he forget that? Um, but just off the top of my head, you know, there are major land campaigns in East Africa, North Africa, in Greece and um, well, through Albania into the rest of the Balkans. There is a large Italian expeditionary force on the Eastern Front. There is, um, you know, Italian troops fighting in the, well, initially in the invasion of, um, of France and then obviously the occupying forces there. And indeed, you know, also occupying forces remain in, in Greece and the Balkans. You know, huge numbers of Italian servicemen are, you know, are positioned there. There are aerial campaigns across the Mediterranean, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, like tactical and, well, strategic strategic campaigns against Malta and against sort of shipping in the Mediterranean uh, alongside the Italian Navy. And indeed, you know, aerial, aerial support of all of these land campaigns as well. And it's similar, similar situation with the Navy. You know, the Mediterranean it becomes the real seat of, of, of Italian naval operations during the Second World War. But there is also a presence in East Africa, at least initially, until um, East Africa's the Italian East African possessions are are, are conquered by um, the, the the forces of the British the British Empire, um, and as mentioned in Bordeaux, uh, the, the 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 presence of 
Italians um, in the Battle of the Atlantic and submarine crews in the Atlantic as well. So it is, you know, it's a huge sort of tapestry of different military adventures. And I guess, you know, when we try and think about, you know, what, (laughs) how we can classify and categorise, you know, Italy's performance in the Second World War, you know, it was, you know, largely disastrous. Um, You know, Italy was comprehensively defeated on almost all of those fronts, really. And one of the arguments that I've seen given and I've definitely has really influenced me and hopefully does come across in the book is that, you know, one of the reasons for that failure was that the planners in Rome and you know, the, the political and military leadership spread Italy's military resources incredibly thinly over such a vast geographical range and asked, you know, what, what you know, what a, a modest, you know, a modest military with modest military resources to do a huge number of different things and soak up resources and manpower in all these different theatres. And it is, you know, an, an incredible range. And I think that's also something to sort of reflect on and remember, you know, yes, it's about North Africa and the desert campaigns there. And it's about the occupation of Greece. And we remember these things through, you know, books and films like Captain Crowley's Mandolin and Mediterraneo and others as well. And yes, it's the defense of, you know, Sicily and the Southern Italian mainland as well. It's also, that's the one thing I forgot, but yeah, you know, there are these sort of conventional, you know, much remembered things, but, you know, Italian forces are fighting all over, you know, not just Europe, but, you know, also Africa and out into the Atlantic as well. And there are also as well, not huge numbers, but these incredible long distance sort of submarine trips that some Italian uh, crews make into the Pacific uh, as well. So trying to connect with um, the Japanese and, um, you know, the Japanese uh, sort of you know, parts of the Japanese empire in the Pacific. So incredibly diverse, incredibly wide ranging. And I think as a historian, it's hard to not come away with you know a consideration of that that doesn't think you know is that maybe not part of the problem you know in terms of the 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 failures and the defeats that italy faced during the conflict is just spreading its spreading its resources incredibly wide and incredibly as a consequence of that quite thin what new perspectives are presented in this study regarding gileazzo Chano? I mean, I think, again, to, to the points about Chiano, obviously, you know, Chiano is not in the resources themselves. It's mainly about how he is perceived and how he's perceived as a really important part of the fascist political and military leadership, political more than anything. But he does have an important military role in things as well. So I guess with Chiano, you know, often because he's left us with this amazing diary of his thoughts and his perspectives on things, which perhaps unsurprisingly um if you sit down and read chiano's diaries you're left with the impression that wow he got all of the major calls right and only if people had listened to chiano maybe it wouldn't have been so um you know badly run and and, and did so poorly in in the second world war um so you know that's that's, that's the, the perspective we often get chiano is in his own words and as a consequence of that i don't think it's it's too cynical to suggest it's often quite a sort of uh, optimistic one or you know quite a sort of positive one um, as positive as you can be for being Mussolini's son-in-law at least uh, but the perspective you get in the sources where you've got these Italian servicemen talking about Chiano is that they're not 
you know, they don't see that side of him. They see him as, you know, absolutely up there with the rest of the fascist leadership. There's no great distinguishing um, between, you know, Chiano and the rest of the leadership. They don't say, oh, you know, actually, this Chiano fellow's all right. It's all the rest of them that are a pack of vagrants and brigands and incompetents. They, they think, you know, Chiano is anything. If he's leading the charge in anything, it's in his corruption and in his ability to pocket the spoils of war for his own benefit. So I think that's, you know, that I, I was always struck by that. And, you know, I think the Chiano diaries are an amazing resource. And, you know, I've sat down and read them and I think there's all sorts of interesting things that they say. But I think for me, it was a reminder that, you know, we, we have to think very critically <laughs> when in the ways that we use and engage with those Chiano diaries because that is his perspective on his actions and there are lots of other perspectives I think that we need to be aware of we're trying to understand the man and his legacy how did perceptions of Benito Mussolini fluctuate among Italian troops and soldiers during the course of the war so Mussolini is an interesting one. I mean, you know, if, if the, 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 what we've talked about so far about Ciano and Mussolini's daughter, Edda, you know, if that is a reflective of a broader, you know, frustration with um, Italian fascism and Italian fascist leadership, uh, it, it, you know, things do get very specific when it comes to Benito Mussolini. And rightly so, you know, he has spent you know, by the, the, the outbreak of the first uh, outbreak of the First World War, the outbreak of the Second World War and Italy's intervention in the Second World War in, in the summer of 1940, he has been at the, the helm of the Italian state for a very long time. And, you know, it's not unreasonable from any perspective, really, to say that, you know, when things start, think when things start unraveling in Italy's experience of the Second World War, the buck has to stop with, with Benito Mussolini. And that is clear in what these 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 transcripts are saying and the way that you know over a, you know a course of time certainly but but the way that you know when it when it really starts to unravel for Mussolini it's in quite spectacular ways within the opinions and the mindset of these men and one of the things i was particularly struck by was the real violence of the language directed against Mussolini it is not just that they think he's a waste of time and they're not hugely fond of him you know there is this real at least in the words and the conversations they're having in, in Britain anyway. But there is this real desire to mete out physical harm to the figure of the Duce. And, you know, there are these, you know, there are these conversations which take place where Italian servicemen are fantasizing about the ways that they would, you know, what they would do to Mussolini if they would get their hands on him. And the particular way that they might assassinate him and things like that as well. So, you know, yes, of course, you know, there was no real chance of that ever happening from the perspective of these prisoners of war of the British, you know, thousands of miles away from where Mussolini was. But I think it does really speak to the, the, the intensity of the sentiment directed against Mussolini when, as I say, things, things really start to unravel. And I think it's a sort of really interesting reflection of you know yes we talk about the cult of personality a lot we talk about the study of italian fascism you know how that cult of personality is established and built and communicated from the center to the people but when you know when it's also interesting to sort of revert that gaze and think well when did it all come crashing down and how did it do it and obviously it does foreshadow those particular expressions of specific violence directed against the body and the figure of, of Benito Mussolini does foreshadow in a quite grim way 
Mussolini's ultimate fate at the end of the Second World War. You know, what 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 did you know? What happens to Mussolini when the Italian population did get their hands on him was incredibly brutal and violent. So there is a kind of historical foreshadowing to that, I think. What is your book's contribution to the study of espionage and intelligence? Yeah, so this is definitely a, an important part of the opening chapters of the book. And it wasn't necessarily the part of my research. You know, I, I, I really, you know, when I started out doing this project, I really wanted to explore the Italian experience of the Second World War. And I found these sources that did that. And that was, you know, there was that there was always that mission to think about Italy in the Second World War throughout every stage of this. But as I sat down with those records and I tried to understand the context of them and what's happening behind the scenes and how have we been left with these you know, hundreds, just under 2000 documents of conversations that were you know, recorded, transcribed, translated you know, during the course of the second. Well, how have we left to that? You, know, you have to sit down and understand, well, OK, you know, there is a specific British military intelligence operation happening here. If we're going to understand the sources, if we're going to fully contextualize the sources, we need to understand what's happening with that. So as, as a way to understand the sources, I started digging around in, in the sort of the, the literature and the archives about you know, the, the, the breadth of, Italian, of British military intelligence operations during the Second World War. And I think what this book contributes to those, to that, particularly in the early chapters um, where I sort of set out my stall in terms of, you know, what these what these documents are and how they've been created and what forced and influenced and shaped them. What really, really opened my eyes up to it was, I mean, you know, I'm not the first ever to think about this, but from my own perspective, it was just the, the diversity of all the different strands of the British military intelligence sort of system during the second world war and its complexity and its sophistication and all the different layers on which it worked so i would say you know from a sort of popular historical perspective or you know your entry point into british military intelligence is through things like the breaking of the enigma code and um, you know bletchley park and the code breakers and alan turing and you know maybe previous generations going back a little bit further would have also thought about you know the the the, the glamorous soe agents who are parachuted behind enemy lines to you know send dispatches back to the united kingdom about what's happening in occupied france or belgium or you know maybe blow up the occasional train and you know those things all happened and they are of you know huge historical and you know from a human level you know historical importance and significance and attention right but it is just one small part of this vast system and network of, of lots of different ways by which you know the british and then you know the, the western allies you know cooperated and tried to sort of win the intelligence war against against germany and against italy so you know the the, the particular um, intelligence operation that led to these transcripts, something called um, the Combined Services Detailed Interrogation Centre, brackets United Kingdom, CSDIC UK. Um, you know, I, I, it, there, it's not something that is is frequently talked about, and you know, it's certainly not in in the sort of pop, public popular sphere. You know, it is overshadowed by Bletchley Park and the Codebreakers, for example. But it made a really important contribution to the human intelligence that was available to 
the, the, the Allies during the Second World War. You know, so we're talking about 2,000, 2000 Italian transcripts. You know, it's, it's well over 10,000 German transcripts. That number may even be higher than that. Forgive me if I've, 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 I've lost track of the numbers there. But it's huge amounts of detail that came from these you know, came from these sources straight from the horse's mouth, straight from the people who were speaking, who who had no idea they were being recorded, had no suspicion, and you know, spoke candidly and openly with their peers in what they thought were private conversations, but just weren't. So you know, it gives a huge amount of a huge amounts of interest to us as historians trying to get into the mindset and the attitudes of the time, but to you know, British intelligence officers who are trying to find out war winning or war influencing information. This is absolutely crucial. Um, and, you know, it was used at every single level of the British intelligence establishment, you know, a very, very high level. You know, this this was a super ultra top secret operation, so much so that the records were not declassified until the 1990s really, in this country. And, you know, even the 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 um, the, the transcripts and the information relating to German or the complicity of Germans in the Holocaust was deliberately withheld from the Nuremberg war crimes trials because the perception of the British intelligence and military establishment was that we can't tell people that we have a system like this because it's too effective and we can't let the cat out of the bag. It's too valuable. Um, So, you know, an incredibly, incredibly important part of the British intelligence or, you know, military, allied military intelligence in the Second World War. Um, and I think, you know, it's it, 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 if we spend all of our time thinking about, you know, just Bletchley Park and just Enigma, that is, you know, that is our failing as historians as opposed to an actual reflection of what was happening, what was going on. And, you know, whilst I do also acknowledge that, you know, sometimes when I when I say this to people, people get the sense that I'm sort of, you know, somehow trying to do down the contribution of Bletchley Park and the Codebreakers. I absolutely am I'm not doing that, or I certainly have no intention of doing that. If I've given off that impression, that is that is mistaken from, from what I've said. I haven't been clear enough. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, for intelligence systems to work properly, you need to have corroborating information from a number of different sources. And that is exactly what CSDIC UK regularly did with the code breakers at Bletchley Park. We can see in the records in the National Archives, you know, there was this regular exchange of information between the two where they were trying to corroborate and double check and verify information that they'd been given. So if we're trying to understand the success of Allied intelligence during the Second World War, it is, I think, only really possible to do that by taking a very broad view and, you know, in a rather self-serving way, because I've done some work on it, you know, CSDIC UK is, is a really important element of that. And, you know, not just in terms of the competition between human human intelligence and signals intelligence, but it's only when you bring those things together to try and piece together the truth of something that, that, that the impact on military intelligence in the course of the war can really be appreciated. What is your book's contribution to the study of naval warfare? So, I mean, I, it, 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 I wouldn't say it has any great contributions to the sort of the big strategic questions, the big strategic debates about uh, the Second World War. It, it operates not so much on a strategic level, but, but a human level. And I think what it does show in particularly the chapters on the experience of fighting warriors of land, sea and air, what that chapter does do is it, 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 it really drove home to me um, well, the, the the underpinning research, anyway, drove home to me that yes, you know, when we talk about the experience of naval warfare during the Second World War. Yes, it was highly technological. 
yes, it could sometimes be fought, you know, very anonymously at great distances, you know, beyond the, the, the sight of the human eye we're talking about, you know, firing, you know, naval encounters between battleships and things like that, you know, the range of those guns going on for very long yeah, if you're inside an Italian submarine firing torpedoes at British merchant shipping in, in, in the Atlantic, you're not up close and personal. You're not seeing the white of your enemy's eyes. There is that way that, you know, naval warfare is presented. But I think from a number of the conversations that are presented here, actually, it, that wasn't always the case. You know, actually, sometimes the, the nature of naval warfare in the Second World War could be quite direct and up close and personal. And particularly in, in the, when when submariners particularly but also other naval personnel talk about coming across the aftermath of naval battles and naval encounters there are some really quite you know troubling anecdotes that they talk about you know they're clearly traumatized and shaken up the people the people narrating them and, and obviously you know as a consequence of that you know they do sort of stick with you um, and I think there is that sort of the real harshness of naval warfare there. I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily something that, you know, I am the first person ever to have noticed. Oh, there, there is a rich there is a rich tradition of, of, of the history of naval warfare in the Second World War that does, does point to those points, does point to that very point. But I think there's something here about reminding again that, you know, the Italians were part of that as well. And I think also, you know, if I was, I guess so, you know, there's the human level there and there's the Italian human level to things. I think there's also something to say about, you know, we talk about the, the, the bigger history of, of naval warfare in the Second World War. You know, having sort of slightly reduced my sort of the strategic, the grand strategic argument sort of significance of what I'm saying maybe if, if I was you know going to reflect on that and sort of try and say something on those lines it would be to you know remind people again that you know when we talk about the, the Battle of the Atlantic and the, the submarine campaigns to cut off merchant shipping between the Western Allies you know the Italians were there at some scale as well and you know sunk dozens of dozens of um, um, uh, allied merchant ships and you know there was a huge sort of contribution and cost so that 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 aspect of it is there. I mean, I don't think necessarily it's you know it, it's the thing that did at any particular point you know make a huge difference to the course of the war. And um, you know the number of uh, of ships sunk by Italian submariners is relatively small, but they are there and they are shaping things and they are filling a you know are filling a role in 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 that campaign. And we think about you know who were the first who were the first sort of who was the first nation to set up a sub submarine base in. In Bordeaux, you know, it was the Italians. It was the Italian base of Betasson. You know, they got there before the Germans did. So, you know, when we think about, you know, who is driving the direction of and, and, and pushing pressure on, you know, the direction of the Battle of the Atlantic and naval warfare in the Second World War, we do have to think about the Italians. And there is evidence within the sources that, that, that I have looked at, which does point towards that, definitely. Who was Captain Salvatore Todaro? So Captain Salvatore Todaro was a, a, a very popular Italian naval officer who a great, great to a great shame um, was is, is not did not survive the war at all and is not as a consequence of that not in the transcripts that's the great shame you know he did not he he was not captured by the british and he did not find his way into this system he he died in i believe 1942 in the mediterranean but he was an incredibly popular officer amongst many of 
the Italian naval personnel and the Italian sort of submariners and some members of the sort of the Italian naval special forces that are present in the book itself. So Todaro is not a direct, is, is not a, a, a con contributor to the transcripts, but he is a subject of a number of different conversations. And so you get this really interesting um, image built up by a number of different uh, members of the cohort, a number of different commentators and contributors of this figure who was held in, from what I can see, almost universally high esteem by people who served with him and by people who, um, you know, hurt new people who served with him. He was incredibly popular. I think in that sort of grand tradition of, you know, inspiring military officers, I think he was beloved by his subordinates um, because he took care of them and he appreciated them and he, you know, pushed them hard, but pushed them hard in the service of a, you know, a mission and gave them purpose. Beloved by his subordinates, I think he, by the sounds of the stories that they tell, you know, he must have been an absolute nightmare to manage from the higher ups in the Italian Navy. But he offers a really interesting snapshot, I think, of, you know, Italian military leadership and the kinds of figures that Italian servicemen, or at least some Italian servicemen, you know, wanted to have lead them. They wanted dynamic, aggressive, ambitious officers leading them. And, um, you know, that was not always the case, was not often the case. You know, Italian military leadership in the Second World War, I think, is rightly often, you know, treated quite sceptically. The, the culture of leadership at, you know, kind of middle rank to higher rank level was quite poor. So I think the fact that so many of these Italian naval personnel latch on to Todaro as this figure that they 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 sort of hero worship in certain respects is, I think, telling of these, these bigger issues. But it's not the case that they were not, you know, uninterested in that kind of leadership. You know, they were not apathetic about fighting. They were not apathetic about taking the fight to the British or the French or, you know, their enemies, their other enemies in the conflict. They wanted to be led well and they wanted to fight hard. And I guess that is something that, you know, that is a sort of nuance to that position I think is sometimes lost when we think about the classic stereotypes and caricatures of the Italian fighting man during the Second World War. How does your research advance your understanding of war crimes and crimes against humanity? Yes, I think it's that it's the question that we've, we've talked about a, a, a little bit before about, you know, reminding us, reminding, you know, anyone, anyone who will listen, really, that, you know, when we talk about crimes against humanity in the context of the Second World War, rightly, the crimes of the Nazis are, are well remembered and, and widely known about and widely talked about. But there are also there is also a really important dimension to what what's happening, what what the Italians are doing and what they are getting up to and the brutality and the atrocities and the war crimes that Italian forces are making. And it is, you know, it, it, it it's a it's a controversial thing to say in certain circles. And it's not to say that I'm trying to, you know, limit what people are saying about the Holocaust or the suffering of European Jews or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to diminish or water down the horror and, and the reason why we look at that. But, you know, I, I don't see taking a wider view of, of war crimes and genocide and you know, crimes against humanity probably a better term, actually, I'm thinking about Italy. I don't, I don't think taking a broader view of crimes against humanity 
you know, means that we we remember other things less. I don't think it's zero sum. I don't think it's a, a, a question of fighting for our historical attention. I think actually we understand the full horrors of everything and the full scope and the full importance of things by looking at the full scope of everything. Um, you know, it's a bit of a circular argument I do appreciate. But I think, you know, we it, it's important to acknowledge that. And I think it's really important that, you know, when we, you know, we, we have to think about the, the space that we create in our public discussion about the Holocaust and about, you know, justice and reckoning at the end of the Second World War, you know, however, however we might classify it. I think it's really important that we do make space for not just consideration of, you know, Hitler and the Nazis and the SS, but also for, you know, what is happening, what is happening from the perspective of Italy in the Second World War. I think that's really, really important. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about the work you've engaged in since completing this project? Well, I mean, it, it's it, it, it's still, I think, the, 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 the research work that I am most proud of this book, really. And as I said at the very beginning, it, I really appreciate you reaching out, wanting to speak about it, because it's reminded me you know, it's reminded me of this exist of the existence of this work, and it's you know it's enabled me to reconnect with something that means a lot to me. And then you know the job that I have now, which is a you know a lecturer or you know, teaching associate, a lecturer basically in in modern history, at, you know, a brilliant institution in in a really you know rich and vibrant department where I have lots of students. You know, my day to day work is very rarely reflecting on past research experience. You know, it, it once it once the book came out and I moved into the classroom, you know, moved back into the classroom. You know, it, it's easy to lose sight of those successes and those um, well, you know, what I consider to be successes anyway. So really, really appreciate having that option to having the opportunity, sorry, to reflect on that and to reconnect with something that means a lot to me. Um, uh, in terms of you know what I've gone off to do subsequently, I mean, um, I have you know the, the the nature of my work with the University of Nottingham has been you know very much led by teaching, and you know I my, most of you know eighty percent of my time at least is spent thinking about teaching undergraduate and and postgraduate students. So, I guess you know one of the things that I'm really working towards now is trying to think about how I can combine my research interests in the Second World War and the Italian experience of the war and the history of Italian fascism and teaching. And if there's a way that I can bring together a sort of, you know, interest in pedagogical research and the research into, you know, how we can best communicate and educate and teach with history, bringing that together. So that's some of the things that I've been playing around there. Um, and I think that's the sort of that, that well, I mean, who knows necessarily where that journey will take me. It's still at a reasonably early stage. I haven't narrowed anything down too, too tightly, but that is something that I'm really interested in doing. I think, you know, that will be the next great horizon as things currently stand. But should an opportunity present itself that takes me away from that, I'm sure I could be distracted. I wish you the very best in that work. It's so important. Thank you, Ari. And once again, thank you for having me. It's been absolutely um, a lovely experience talking about this, this project and this work. It has been my hallowed honor. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, 
I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Alexander Henry. We've been discussing his recently published book, War Through Italian Eyes, Fighting for Mussolini, 1940-1943, published in New York by Routledge Publishers, 2021. Alexander Henry is Teaching Associate in Modern History in the Department of History at the University of Nottingham. Thank you.